Can you hear me now? Yay. So even though you're, um, this retreat is, it, it may have felt interminably long to you, but it is a relatively short retreat. And in a sense, the, the first two days of the retreat, which is pretty much the first two full, the, the full length of this retreat, a lot of the process is is just getting used to being embodied, used to being present, used to um, a different framework of, rather than constantly thinking about our experience, experiencing things directly in a very simple way. And you're just in some way, even though I don't want to assume too much about you, you're really just getting your feet wet. And, of course, the retreat is over, almost. But really, we do have quite a bit of time left, depending on how you look at it. But even though the retreat is short, I thought tonight I would, and because it's short, I thought that I would paint a little picture. I love that Aaron spoke about the mapping that the Buddha did about how to, where this practice fits in a map of liberation, in a map really aimed at fulfilling that deepest longing that all human beings share, the desire to be happy. And in fact, it, it um, maps out how to... Um, how to actually solve that issue. So we talked about solving problems. We all came here with a problem. Some came with a thinking problem. At least you thought you had a thinking problem. Others came with just a problem of feeling dissatisfied, feeling like you are somehow cut off, the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. Some feeling that the Buddha described as dukkha, sometimes translated as unsatisfactoriness, experiencing something that's difficult to bear, uh, a wheel out of round, something not quite right. And that that is something that marks every single person's life. And faced with that, we naturally, out of love for ourselves, we want to be happy. We want to find some relief. And most of what has been mapped out for us in our conventional world, the very medicine that we take to alleviate this feeling of discomfort, ends up in the long run increasing it. And we become incredibly confused about what it really even means to be happy. And then we come to a meditation retreat and you suffer the first two days. Now what does this have to do with being happy? Now maybe you've gotten a little inclination that something about happiness has to do with learning how to sit in the middle of things. That one way of putting it, the way out is in. That as, as the poet Rumi put it, the cure for pain is in the pain. I think this is beautifully expressed in a poem. I thought about how I wanted to start this talk and this poem kept coming into my mind so I kind of furiously thumbed through my readings and came up with it. And it's a poem by Pesha Joyce Gertler popular poem read on retreats, but I think it speaks to maybe a way that you can feel what you've been doing has something to do with happiness. And it's called The Healing Time. 
Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again, where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. So learning to turn toward what is difficult. But that may not be so convincing that that is a a cause of happiness. So I thought that I would at least paint the map and maybe you might get a feeling for the, the way this path can unfold and what and how this and what this has to do with happiness. The Buddha was called the happy one. Sukhiya. So you already hear in this word Sukhiya, the happy one, you hear that there is an antidote for dukkha, and that's called sukha. Sukha is the opposite of dukkha. Sukha is comfort, well-being, happiness. The Buddha was called Sukhiya. Yet, in the, in the Buddha's first teaching, which I'll mention again toward the end of the talk, the first teaching that he offered first conversation he had with some of his old practice friends who were really sincere about finding true happiness, he said to them, the first thing he said to them, life has within it many things that are difficult to bear. There are things that birth is hard to bear, sickness is hard to bear, old age is hard to bear, dying is hard to bear, not getting what you want in your life, hard to bear, not wanting what you get in your life, hard to bear, being separated from all that you hold near and dear, it's hard to bear. That was the first teaching. Not exactly initially uplifting. Although, the first time I heard that, what's called the first noble truth, I wept with joy. Because somebody was finally saying it so clearly, how it actually is. Not an aberration, not weird, just reality. Not pessimistic, but realistic. This is a feature of every single person's life. That's the first thing that he offered to his his sincere meditator friends. But he didn't stop there. He said, what turns that, the basic unsatisfactoriness, unreliability of life, because it's marked so much by change and impermanence, what turns it into mental suffering, what, what compounds that experience with, with a, a kind of wheel of suffering, is this very chronic tendency that human beings have to want things to be different than the way they are. So some, I always think of when I say this part about the Second Noble Truth, the the story, which I don't have with me tonight, where a farmer goes to the Buddha and says, "Um, you know, I I have lots of um, problems. I, you know, I love my wife, but, you know, she's not so easy to deal with. My kids have trouble with my kids, trouble this, trouble with that. You know, things are hard to bear. And... uh, you know, what, what can you tell me, 
Buddha, how can you help me with my problems with my wife, my family, my kids, my fields, whatever? He, he says, I can't help you with that. He says, everybody has 83 problems. See, I can't help you with the 83 problems. And, and the farmer says, what is this? You're supposed to be the big guru. You know, you're supposed to be the world teacher. He says, listen, everybody has 83 problems. I can't help you with those, but I can help you with the 84th problem. What's the 84th problem? The 84th problem is that you don't think you should have any problems. <laughs> so this leads naturally into the, the third truth that the Buddha spoke about, that there is an end, there is a cessation to that, that turmoil, that contention that Aaron spoke about, that reactivity that turns the basic challenges of life into mental suffering and sends us on this kind of endless search that keeps us, keeps us on a treadmill. There's an end to it. And finally, the last part and everything that we've been engaged in in this weekend is that there is a path to the end of this um, stress and suffering that we add to our experience. There is a a way of sitting in the middle of it all. There's a way to be free. As Albert Camus said, in the midst of winter, I realized that there was within me an invincible summer. It is a possibility of awakening to something in each of ourselves, as Aaron has referred to, that is untouchable, that is unconditioned, that is free, independent of circumstances. And it, just a little sneak preview, it turns out to be your natural state. So how did the Buddha come to this synthesis of his teaching? His, uh, how did everything that he went through coalesce in this, in what was called the Dhammachaka Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, the, the disseminating of this, this realization that he had, because it's, this is based on a realization. And that, what he suggested is that each of us, it's, you don't just know these things as a philosophical idea. With the first one about things that are hard to bear, what did he say? He said, what we need to do with that, there was a prescription. So here's the diagnosis. The prescription is open to it. Just what we've been asking you to do all weekend. And then the, the third part of that recipe or that, that prescription is you, you want to be able to inwardly say, yes, I've opened to it. Have that feeling of confidence, that serene clarity that says, yes, I've been able to accommodate the, the essential difficulties of life. Second truth the diagnosis that we, we tend to chronically want things to be other than they are. The, the prescription is to let go, let be, learn how to be, how to be with things as they are. And especially since you were offered the instructions on thinking today, on noticing the thinking mind, letting the thoughts appear and disappear, and a little invitation to, to choiceless awareness, and then Aaron invited you to feel the flow of the internal weather of emotions. We learn how to let, let those be. And let go doesn't mean detach, get rid of. It means let go of fighting with our experience. Let things unfold according to their nature. Since you heard a lot about thoughts today, or this morning, I thought that I'd share with you the teachings of Ajahn Sumedho, where he said, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go. 
Rather than try to develop this practice and that practice and go into this, go into that, learn Pali and Sanskrit, the Majamaka, the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just say, let go. Let go, let go. He said, I didn't do anything but that for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, until the desire would fade out by itself. He says, so I'm saving you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. He says, there's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) He says, some of you may want to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. He says, I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go. So that's the prescription for the second truth. And you want to be able to, to... have that experience, one moment at a time. Then the third truth, that there is a cessation, there's an end to this tight fist of wanting things to be a certain way. And the prescription for that is, you must realize this. You must realize the, the, the fading away of that, of that quality of, of holding. And then the path of awakening the fourth noble truth, the prescription is you must um, cultivate it, create it out of your own life. Not some kind of cookie cutter approach, but out of your own life. So I find it very instructive when I hear this teaching to reflect on how did the Buddha come up with this? How did it get distilled into this little diagnostic diagram, this map of of diagnosis, prescription, and healing or result. Because he was exactly like us. As Aaron said last night, he lived in the, relatively speaking, very much like we do in this Western world with with an array of sense pleasures never seen in the history of the world. And relative to his time, he had access to the level of, of pleasure that um, very comparable to what we have today. And yet he had this feeling of dukkha, this feeling that the wheel was out of round, this angst, this kind of existential, no matter how, Even the wealthiest person in the world has dukkha. Person with everything, every opportunity, still, no matter how much. Have you ever gone on a, you know, you've gone, maybe you've gone to some of the hot springs in Cal, in, where's, Harbin Hot Springs or Wilbur, some of the neighborhood places, or you've, you've gone a day to the beach, or you've gone, You've gone to a special meal at, a, at your favorite restaurant, and you've spent a, the whole week, the whole week looking forward to that event, to that vacation, that, that visit, and you experience it, you get there, and a lot of the joy of the experience is you're no longer waiting for it. But two, once you're there, There are beautiful moments, but then it's always marked by a little bit of, yeah. (laughs) It's, It's pretty nice. But then we go back home, having just glanced over the basic unsatisfactoriness. We don't let ourselves completely feel that. And then what do we do? We just generate another desire, another fantasy, because it produces on the surface a pleasant feeling, the thought of looking forward to something. It's human. But what we often don't notice, and I think this is what the Buddha was onto, what we don't notice 
is when our mind is in a state of waiting, or wanting, or hoping, or expecting, planning, when we are in a state of, in any way, associating our happiness with satisfying some kind of hunger, some kind of fulfillment, the underlying feeling of desire, of waiting, of wanting, is a feeling of tension. And this is why, as we opened today, and throughout the retreat, to our moods and emotions and mental states, there's always accompanied with them a story of some sort, a a fantasy, a, a view, and a little trick that our mind plays that says, this is the secret to happiness. Aaron, did you talk about the, the bell as the secret to happiness? I just mentioned it. Oh, you did? You okay. can say more. Okay. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure how much Aaron shared with you, but this bell is just a, it's a little microcosm for the, the best fantasy that you have. And it often comes at a certain point in the sitting where you may feel a little unsteady, uncomfortable, and thought arises that I want the bell to ring. This is desire in the mind. (laughs) And if that thought goes unnoticed, our mind projects all of our, it becomes the secret to happiness, is the bell ringing. And our whole body goes into a state of what I call suspended happiness. <laughs> Tight, underlying, bell, oh. <laughs> and then the, the bell rings. And we go, ah. Oh. Finally happy. (laughs) And we think it was the bell that gave us the relief. But what we fail to recognize that it is the passing of that feeling of waiting and wanting that gives the real relief. And yet, because we mistake the source of happiness which is the quieting of our dependency and desire. We mistake it for the bell. Our mind just moves from one golden dream to another. And the Buddha saw this. He saw that there was, he had everything and yet was left, what's left in the wake of trying to satisfy that deep longing for happiness and well-being what is left in the wake of using things like the bell, or whatever it is, sex, drugs, whatever, whatever it is, it leaves in its wake an increasing feeling of dissatisfaction. It increases our dukkha. But why that really struck him, why he even looked at that very closely, is he saw that as... Aaron mentioned very briefly last night, he, his eyes opened and he saw the reality of sickness, old age, and death. And then he saw the example of somebody that was going against the, the stream of what, what everyone else was doing, someone who modeled that quality of kind of serene clarity that, that is at home, independent of circumstances. But in seeing sickness, old age, and death, he said, okay, I'm going to, everything about this life of mine is subject to change and decay. And then everything I seem to be using to try to satisfy my, that longing for happiness is also subject to the same kind of changing conditions. Not very reliable, very short, short-lived said, there's something wrong with this. This is not a cause of happiness. A cause of lots and lots and lots of pleasure. 
but not happiness, not true happiness. One of the things that inspired me besides just hearing the teachings of, like I said, the Four Noble Truths just ignited my heart with a kind of joy of somebody saying what, what was true and that we were pretending somehow in our life that it's not. The way we dress up our corpses, the way we, the way we beautify the, the multi, multi-billion dollar business in, in sustaining our pride in uh, our enchantment with youth and our enchantment with health, and our enchantment with life, and not realizing that both youth gives way to aging, and health is unreliable, and the definition of birth, as according to the Wiley's Dictionary, it's the leading cause of death. <laughs> well, what got me turned on to the, besides the Four Noble Truths, is I had the good fortune of being an attendant to a wonderful teacher, and I highly recommend you read the, a book about him. Uh, his name was Anagarika Munindra. And Munindra was the, if you, I don't know how many of you have heard of Joseph Goldstein, who to me is the preeminent Western Dharma teacher. If I don't say, you know, I just, it's just an opinion, but really a has just ignited the hearts of so many people and given that, that kind of faith and confidence in the possibility of, of living a, a, a wakeful and compassionate life. So his teacher was Anagar Munindra and he came to the, to the States and I got to be his attendant. And so I drove him around and went shopping with him and hung out with him a lot. And so he got to... He, he got to see me, I got to see him. And even though I was a kind of a rookie meditator and a rookie manager and attendant, we struck up a bit of a friendship. And when, he, when we finally parted, he looked at me. And this seems like in the, on the surface it, would be, it wouldn't be such a, a moving comment, a kind of heart-shattering comment, but he said, may you truly be happy. And that just hit me in the heart because I thought I was kind of happy. Kind of happy disposition. But it, it triggered this kind of deep insecurity in a way that I didn't really know what true happiness was. So it made me start to study what the Buddha was saying about happiness and how does somebody find true happiness. Because mostly what we, I, was, I learned is uh, you know, the, the way to be happy is to buy a lot of stuff. As one Tibetan teacher put it, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara, that's endless wandering, and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from truth, make truth hard to live for and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in, and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara's highly organized, versatile, sophisticated assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction in and around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions which promise happiness but lead to more misery, We're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us thirstier. So that's the model that we all grew up with. I don't know, I get very happy when I read this because it's, you know, it's true. There's some truth in it that we sometimes don't want to look at and we're 
we're sometimes moving so, so quickly. As the Dalai Lama says, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, answered man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. (laughs) And then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die, and he dies having never really lived. (laughs) We're on a treadmill. So it's so beautiful that you have stopped here, that you've stepped off the wheel even for a moment, a moment of not toppling forward into an imagined future that never arrives. Because time is only and always now. So that's the model we've been raised with, but uh, for the Buddha, saw that same thing, that just the linking pleasurable experiences together one after another and going from place to place, trip to trip, meal to meal, no matter how many you link together, each experience is one, the happiness depends on satisfying the hunger, two, it leaves in its wake an increasing feeling. There's a pleasure and the loss, and in that space of emptiness, you could say, of the end of your experience, our mind, the seed is planted to generate another desire. So that wasn't true happiness. So when all was being offered was this kind of happiness, which the Buddha called Lokiya Sukha. Lokiya Sukha. Lokiya means Lokiya it means worldly or of the world. A loka is a world. Lokiya is of the world. Lokiya Sukha, worldly happiness, is essentially translated as happiness that depends on conditions being a certain way on satisfying conditions, sometimes called the happiness of hunger, sometimes also called the happiness of bondage. So that kind of happiness is subsumed under the umbrella of of dukkha. It's unreliable, so leaves in its wake unsatisfactoriness. And that pretty much covers everything that we tend to devote ourselves to. But the idea in our practice is not to give up these kinds of pleasures. These pleasures, the world of senses and having our senses gladdened and satisfied is a beautiful thing. We wouldn't have senses if they, were, if it was, if they weren't meant to be, to be able to enjoy sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations and looking into each other's eyes the joy that we experience with solitude, also a changing condition. The joy that we experience when we're together, also a changing condition. We don't give up these things. As Suzuki Roshi put it, renunciation isn't giving up the things of this world, but in having a deep and profound understanding that they go away, that they're unreliable. And so we we learn to live like William Blake, who says, He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. That we find a different kind of joy, not in grasping at one pleasure after another, but in the joy of letting go, the joy of non-clinging, not separating, not distancing, but in opening our fists, letting life be, as it is, where it is. And ultimately, you know, as I say that, I just feel that feeling in the room of letting be, and how any of us at any time 
can just experience this a little bit. As Ajahn Chah, the great forest master, put it, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. He says, do everything with a mind that lets, lets go. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. But getting back to the Buddha's exploration of true happiness, how he came to distill the teaching down to this this, this simple compilation of four truths and, and the path that you've been that you're cultivating. He he thought to himself, you know, if I have to stay in this world, in this, um, in this way of living, that where what I'm supposed to do, and he was pretty duty-bound being from his culture, he was duty-bound to essentially go into the family business, spread the, the lands, and enjoy the, the regal life of a of a, a Brahmin, someone who's who is uh, of of privilege, and mostly duty bound not to question the fact that he could have that experience and not everybody else could. Already, the, the you could see the seeds of of his his. Um, his radical social experiment. Because when he ultimately formed the Sangha, he said, everybody here wears robes. There's nobody that's any higher than anybody else. No one any more privileged than anyone else. No one has any more access to teachings than anyone else. So he was, in some ways, duty-bound to live that way. But he says, if I have to do that, and if I have to just associate my happiness with just linking pleasurable moments together over and over again and then feeling ultimately satisfied, for me, it would be like a bed of coals, sitting on a bed of coals. Because there's no, I'm not, my heart's not at peace. I can't do that. Because his heart had been, had been pierced with, with seeing so clearly the futility of trying to find some kind of lasting happiness in just fleeting, in fleeting moments. Trying to find a lasting youth in a body that's aging, lasting health in a body that's vulnerable, and lasting life when he saw somebody his own age almost dead and then he saw a corpse. And it just speaks to our own capacity to self-deception, how we don't like to see these things because it, it'll wake us up that's why they're called those three sickness, old age, and be- sickness, old age, and death, and the renunciate are called the four heavenly messengers. They they remind us of, of what we're doing here. And his dad tried to protect him from seeing those messengers, but he did. And it it had the effect of turning his mind toward t- turning his mind more inward toward discovering. Inwardly, the, the model of the renunciate showed him that there's something internal that we can discover that doesn't have so much to do with circumstances. You know, if you, if you, most of us associate our happiness with what our life situation is like. But I've seen so many people on retreat over the years whose life situation is a disaster. But right in the middle of it, they taste their natural state of of joy and well-being and peace. Situation had not changed at all over the course of the retreat. But they awoke to something. And of course, the practice is to be able to stay close to that sacred happiness, that place that's without sorrow, even in the middle of difficult situations. 
And most of us don't even think that's possible. We're waiting, hoping that a situation changes. And so we put our well-being on hold. We postpone being at home with ourselves. So this is the this invitation to meditation is not to is to stop waiting to be what you are, that all search and wait for happiness is misery. And that the only happiness that is worth talking about is the ultimately is the, the happiness of being conscious, fully aware. Because that moment of being fully aware, just notice it right now, if you're really fully aware here, that moment that you're not looking back and you're not looking ahead, you're just here experiencing what you're experiencing, whether it's a mental state, or whether it's a physical state. If you're truly just attending to what it is that's happening, where is your suffering? Your suffering in this instant requires you consulting your memory. So if you don't give rise to a memory or a plan, you're just here. What's missing? Makes me think of a Hafiz, Hafez poem called uh, Stop Being So Religious. It says, what do people who are sad have in common? It seems they've all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What's the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. And I wrote chapter two, or part two. What do people who are anxious and worried have in common? They've all built a shrine to the future and often go there to do a strange wail and worry. What's the beginning of happiness? to stop being so religious like that. Just to basically learn to stay where we are. So that's an inside job. That's a, an orienting ourselves to real time. It's gathering. It's using that love muscle I talked about in the Q&A this morning. Gathering ourselves here and sustaining that sense of here. And that simple act of gathering and sustaining, collecting ourselves, begins over time, and maybe you got little glimpses of it, to give, give you a taste of sukha, of comfort, a feeling of rapt attention, rapture, kind of aliveness, and a feeling of one-pointedness, where your, your mind and body aren't going in ten different directions all at once. And how far did I travel to do that? Nowhere. Came to that single point, that point where I connect with all of life. So the Buddha did this. He left home, followed the, as Aaron said, the local te- the teachers who were teaching all kinds of meditation practices. And he mastered all the kinds of practice, and mostly the, the pinnacle of what they were teaching was to come to this single point. And he experienced a profound sense of one-pointedness, a profound sense of joy, he called it unmixed happiness. The joy, the happiness of a mind and body that are harmonious, collected, a mind and a body that are, for, are momentarily free of our usual preoccupations, free of the hindrances. You know what the hindrances are? Wanting what you don't have, not wanting what you do have, restless and agitated, slothful, torpor, and doubt. That, that running narrative, how it's not working. I'm not doing very well. I can't do this. They, they don't know what they're talking about. This doesn't work. That diminishing, deflating, mental torment of doubt. The beauty of practice, though, just because of these hindrances, 
the noticing of them, those very same mental states, doubt, desire, aversion, the noticing of them becomes the the cause of our awakening. Those difficult states, when they are brought into the light of attention, become our path. They They become our reminder of our love of being right where we are. They, they really help. But unnoticed, and for the most part, if our mind is untrained, we just get blown around by, by, by desire, by ill will, aversion, politicians. That's been triggering my aversion lately. And, you know, restlessness and worried about the future and, and replaying so much, innocently replaying so much of what happened in the past. And then, and then lots of doubt, because we, you know, get you get these what are called multiple hindrance attacks where they all come together. You know, doubt and desire and aversion. And with desire, we get really caught up in, on retreats. You know, we get the vipassana romance where somebody triggers a desire, you know, a pleasurable feeling, and pretty soon you're just. You, you're dating and mating and traveling and married and divorced and it's high drama. You know, nothing happened, but, but it seems like you've just been dragged through a world of, of torment. Well, when the Buddha's mind was collected and when our mind, as one teacher put it, when your mind is kept away from its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. Or once you keep, once you notice them and you don't cling to these preoccupations, your mind naturally falls into its natural quietness. And if you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, you just let yourself be quiet. You see that your, your mind, your body is permeated with a light and a love you've never known, but you recognize it at once as your own nature. And so once you've been through that experience, you're never the same person again. You've tasted a happiness that is far superior to the fleeting happiness of our usual um, pleasure. And this happened to the Buddha. Unmixed happiness, supramundane, beyond the mundane. And maybe you had little tastes of it over the course of even these few days, where those moments where you didn't want to be somewhere else, you didn't want anything else different to be happening, You weren't looking ahead, you weren't looking back, you were just present. This is the this kind of temporary experience of a kind of freedom from our usual torments is a springboard to awakening. But then the Buddha also realized that that same experience, that experience of being so collected, so present, that if you if you associate that with true happiness, it will corrupt your practice. That even that delicious experience of unmixed happiness is ultimately subject to the same unreliability as the fleeting pleasures of our life. It doesn't last. And that was really it. That's all that the, was being offered at the time of the Buddha's life. He realized this is not real. This is not true happiness. This is a very, very high-class happiness. Very refined, but not true happiness. And it wasn't until well, at that after that he he left all these teachers and he. As Aaron was saying last night, he tried the ascetic practices and that just made him sick and tired. But then he finally said, you know, listen, there's nobody to teach me here. I've I've gone to the extremes of sense pleasures. I've gone to the extremes of of self-mortification. Got to take food. I've got to be well-fed, comfortable. Got to have some pleasure of the senses, some gladdening of the senses. But I'm I won't let the pleasure of that overtake me anymore. And so he decided to sit down and not get up until he found true happiness. So basically saying, 
I'm going to stay here till my rear end is calloused. Of course, that's symbolic, because it's not so much the form, but it is the it is the um, it is making that that wakefulness of each unfolding experience the hub around which you live your life. That sense of aware presence. Independent of circumstances. The good news is you don't have to go anywhere to do that. You may have to come to Spirit Rock to be reminded that you don't have to go anywhere. (laughs) So that's the paradox. But at that point he sat down and he used the very gathering and sustaining that, we've been, that we're using, the same conditions that lead to a calm abiding, to lead to focus, to lead to that feeling of unmixed happiness. But he decided from experience that he wasn't going to let the pleasure of it be too enchanted or intoxicated by the pleasure of it. Instead, he was going to use the the power of attention that comes with a, a mind that's well collected, a heart and mind that are in the same location, just totally at rest, fully wakeful. And then, moment by moment, do what we've been doing, what we began to open to, this kind of choiceless awareness, noticing each arising experience. Breathing, sensations, sounds, thoughts, images, feelings. And as he sat there, he started noticing. His mind became stronger and stronger by noticing each changing experience. And each experience that he noticed kept having the effect and you may, be, you, you may not notice it because you're right in the middle of it, but every time we aim or we connect, gently connect with whatever is here, it's like our senses become really clear. We start to see more clearly, hear more clearly, smell. If you notice taste in a way that you've never tasted before, it's like brushing the dust of memory and habit, and there's this mirror-like awareness that's very sensitive, very, very clear. So no matter what he paid attention to, it had the effect of his heart and mind getting brighter and brighter until it was shining in its clarity. And he, he exclaimed about that, that, that he saw that our mind is inherently luminous. He said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. But it gets visited by all of these experiences, defilements and and torments. Most people don't understand that, so they don't cultivate their mind. They don't understand how it works. But then he started to see, luminous is this mind, and when, it's, when I'm in touch with that, when it's brightly shining, that luminosity is untouched by whatever visits, whatever's going on. It's not affected by what... The noticing is not affected by what we're noticing. So when you are sad, when sadness is arising, awareness is not sad. Awareness just knows that. So awareness of anger is not angry. Awareness of pain is not pained. Awareness is free. It is untouched. The more he paid attention to this flow of experience, few things became so crystal clear, and I assume that they became a little more clear to you this weekend everything that came into his mind and body as he paid attention. Everything arose and faded away. Constant flux. Everything coming and going. Breath by breath. 
sensation by sensation, mood by mood, sound by sound. All those, as some say, 65,000 thoughts that we have every day. 90% being repeats from the day before. No, just, that's some people say that. But all of those, where are they now? Arising and vanishing. Leaving no trace in awareness. And the more he saw that everything was arising and passing, sensations, everything that he had taken taken to be me. It's not this body is me, but it seems to be in a constant state of flux. And it's doing that all by itself. This body is not me or mine. It's it's operating according to its own laws. As Jack Cornfield calls it, rent a body. (laughs) And the moods which I'm so identified with, my feelings, of course they Conventionally speaking, they are yours, they're not mine. But from a meditative point of view, this so-called my feelings, feelings come, feelings go like weather. They're no more personal than the weather in that, in that, that they arise as changing conditions all by themselves. So the more he saw the changing, selfless nature of the experience that was coming into the mind and body, the less he's, the, just the natural reaction was to stop grabbing so much. Just stop identifying, this is me. Just let it be. Stop trying to hold on to that which is changing. Because if you do that, as Joseph Goldstein says, you get rope burn. <laughs> stop pushing away the unpleasant. It passes of itself. And the more he... The less he grabbed, the less he pushed away, the less he identified with it, made it personal, the more his mind relaxed into a greater joy than he had ever experienced, a greater kind of happiness, sometimes described as vipassana happiness, the happiness of seeing the arising and passing of experience, but not getting caught up in it more available than ever to tremendous joy and tremendous all the feelings that come as a human being, but not fighting with it, not just turning into a blank nothing, but free to be fully human. And so he fell into this great sense of of mountain-like, sky-like equanimity, balance, that could meet the joys, the sorrows, everything that, that expresses itself as a human being without that tight, reactive, contentious uh, way that we habitually relate to our experience. And he realized this is a ter- first taste of freedom This wasn't just some fleeting happiness that depends on conditions. This was a happiness that didn't seem to depend on what was showing up in his his mind. And so he kind of fell into this kind of equanimity, this kind of balance. And as he rested there, in a flash of insight, his mind just relaxed and opened. And in a flash of insight, he realized, oh, true happiness, nirvana, the highest happiness, the unconditioned, the unborn, the deathless, none other than the nature of my own mind. The very Consciousness through which we're perceiving. And we've been looking elsewhere. So at first, of course, didn't think anybody could get it. You know, everybody's running around like a chicken with their heads cut off. 
endlessly waiting for the future, future happiness. But then he saw that there were those like you. That's why we have this a lot of confidence in you, that there were those with just a little dust on their eyes. And if pointed back to the the potential power of our own attention that you could realize and have access to and are welcome to, invited to, the highest happiness as your own natural state. And at that point, he, he went to see his old ascetic friends who he knew were really didn't want anything. They had given rise to that one desire to be solved, the desire for true happiness. And they weren't, just, they weren't vague about it. They, were, they wanted that one desire that no other desire could fulfill. And so he said, you know, do this. He said, life has dukkha in it. Open to it. Stay where you are. Sit in the middle of it. What turns dukkha into more suffering is you're constant trying to get away from it. Constantly in that state of wanting. Becoming. Obsessed with what's next. Obsessed with getting rid of. Complaining. Let go. And realize the sense of of freedom, here and now. And take your whole life and bring your whole life into this this feast of wakefulness. Bring every relationship, bring everything that comes out of your mouth into into that relationship, into that wakefulness. Bring all of your actions so none of your actions will cause you to to lose contact. So all of your actions will be the cause of well-being, not just for yourself, but for others. Do everything to stay forever, remain unseparated from that sacred happiness that's without sorrow, here and now. Shape your life so that you can always remember that. So I think I'll end. I'm sorry I went on a little long. (laughs) I'll end with a passage. I've ended this kind of talk on true happiness before. A passage from a Tibetan teacher that just, to me, is such a beautiful... This It's called Free and Easy, and it's an invitation, really, to our sense of meditative presence. He says, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. So don't strain yourself. There is nothing that needs to be done about your experience and nothing to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in your body and mind has no real importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. So why identify with, grasp it and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to allow, simply allow, the entire process to happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing and manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching. Or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. 
Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. So make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. How marvelous. Everything unfolds of itself. So let's just rest in this natural happiness and peace for a moment. You don't need to change your position if you don't want to. May all beings find true happiness. May all beings aim for the highest happiness. May all beings enjoy all kinds of happiness. Thank you for your long enduring attention. We have about 20 minutes now for walking practice, enjoying just being as you are, where you are, and sit again at nine.